1. Jokes for all occasions selected and edited by one of America's foremost public speakers New York Edward J. Cialodi Copyright, 1921-1922. By Edward J. Cialodi printed in the United States of America Jokes for all occasions preface the ways of telling a story are as many as the tellers themselves. It is impossible to lay down precise rules by which anyone may perfect himself in the art but it is possible to offer suggestions by which to guide practice in narration toward a gratifying success. Broadly distinguished, there are two methods of telling a story. One uses the extreme of brevity, and makes its chief reliance on the point. The other devotes itself in great part to preliminary elaboration in the narrative, making this as amusing as possible, so that the point itself serves to cap a climax. In the public telling of an anecdote the tyro would be well advised to follow the first method that island he should put his reliance on the point of the story, and on this alone, he should scrupulously limit himself to such statements as are absolutely essential to clear understanding of the point, he should make a careful examination of the story with two objects in mind, the first, to determine just what is required in the way of explanation, the second, an exact understanding of the point itself, then, when it comes to the relating of the story, He must simply give the information required by the hearers in order to appreciate the point. As to the point itself, he must guard against any carelessness. Omission of an essential detail is fatal. It may be well for him, at the outset, to memorize the conclusion of the story. No matter how falteringly the story is told, it will succeed if the point itself be made clear. And this is ensured for even the most embarrassed speaker by memorizing it. The art of making the whole narration entertaining and amusing is to be attained only by intelligent practice. It is commonly believed that story sellers are born, not made, as a matter of fact. However, the skilled raconteurs owe their skill in great measure to the fact that they are unwearying in practice. It island therefore, recommended to anyone having ambition in this direction that he cultivate his ability by exercising it. He should practice short and simple stories according to his opportunities with the object of making the narration smooth and easy. An audience of one or two familiar friends is sufficient in the earlier efforts. Afterward, the practice may be extended before a larger number of listeners on social occasions. When facility has been attained in the simplest form, attempts to extend the preliminary narrative should be made. The preparation should include an effort to invest the characters of the story, or its setting, with qualities amusing in themselves, quite apart from any relation to the point. Precise instruction cannot be given, but concentration along this line will of itself develop the humorous perception of the storyteller, so that, though the task may appear too difficult in prospect, it will not prove so in actual experience, but, in every instance, care must be exercised to keep the point of the story clearly in view, and to omit nothing essential in the preparation for it, in the selection of stories to be retailed, it is the part of wisdom to choose the old, rather than the new. This is because the new story, so-called, travels with frightful velocity under modern social conditions, and, in any particular case, the latest story, when told by you to a friend, has just been heard by him from some other victim of it, but the memory of most persons for stories is very short, practically never does it last for years, so, it is uniformly safe to present as novelties at the present day the humor of past decades, moreover, The exercise of some slight degree of ingenuity will serve to give those touches in the way of change by which the story may be brought up to date. Indeed, by such adaptation, the story is made really one's own as the professional humorists thankfully admit. Introduction with and humor.
and the distinction between them. Defy precise definition. Luckily, they need none. To one asking what is beauty, Awit replied, that is the question of a blind man. Similarly, none requires a definition of wit and humor unless he himself be lacking in all appreciation of them. And, if he be so lacking, no amount of explanation will avail to give him understanding. Borrow, in one of his sermons, declared concerning wit, it island indeed, a thing so versatile, multiform, appearing in so many shapes and garbs, so variously apprehended of several eyes and judgments, that it seemeth no less hard to settle a clear and certain notion thereof than to make a portrait of Proteus, or to define the figure of the fleeting wind, nor is it fitting to attempt exact distinctions between wit and humor, which are essentially two aspects of one thing. It is enough to realize that humor is the product of nature rather than of art, while wit is the expression of an intellectual art. Humor exerts an emotional appeal, produces smiles or laughter, wit may be amusing, or it may not, according to the circumstances, but it always provokes an intellectual appreciation. Thus, Nero made a pun on the name of Seneca, when the philosopher was brought before him for sentence, in speaking the decree that the old man should kill himself. The emperor used merely the two Latin words, Southeast Necca. We admit the ghastly cleverness of the jest, but we do not chuckle over it. The element of surprise is common to both wit and humor, and it is often a sufficient cause for laughter in itself. Irrespective of any essentially amusing quality in the cause of the surprise, the unfamiliar, for this reason, often has a ludicrous appeal to primitive peoples. An African tribe, on being told by the missionary that the world is round, Roared with laughter for hours, it is told of a Mikado that he burst a blood vessel and died in a fit of merriment induced by hearing that the American people ruled themselves. In like fashion, the average person grins or guffaws at sight of a stranger in an outlandish costume. Although, as a matter of fact, the dress may be in every respect superior to his own. Simply, its oddity somehow tickles the risibilities. Such surprise is occasioned by contrasting circumstances. When a pompous gentleman, Marching magnificently, suddenly steps on a banana peel, pirouettes, somersaults, and sits with extreme violence. We laugh before asking if he broke a leg. The fundamentals of wit and humor are the same throughout all the various tribes of earth, throughout all the various ages of history. The causes of amusement are essentially the same everywhere and always, and only the setting changes according to time and place. But racial characteristics establish preferences for certain aspects of fun making and such preferences serve to some extent in differentiating the written humor of the world along the lines of nationality. Nevertheless, it is a fact that the really amusing story has an almost universal appeal. I have seen in an American country newspaper a town correspondent's humorous effort in which he gave C. Parkins's explanation of being in jail, and that explanation ran on all fours with a Chinese story ages and ages old. The local correspondent did not plagiarize from the Chinaman, merely. The humorous bend of the two was identical. In the ancient oriental tale, a man who wore the thief's collar as a punishment was questioned by an acquaintance concerning the cause of his plight. Why? It was just nothing at all. The convict explained easily. I was strolling along the edge of the canal, when I happened to catch sight of a bit of old rope. Of course, I knew that old piece of rope was of no use to anyone, and so I just picked it up, and took it home with me. But I don't understand. The acquaintance exclaimed, Why should they punish you so severely for a little thing like that? I don't understand it. I don't understand it, either, the convict declared. Unless, maybe, it was because there was an ox at the other end of the rope. 
The universality of humor is excellently illustrated in Greek literature, where is to be found many a joke at which we are laughing today, as others have laughed through the centuries, half a thousand years before the Christian era. A platonic philosopher at Alexandria, by name Hierocles, group 21 jests in a volume under the title, Astia. Some of them are still current with us as typical Irish bulls. Among these were accounts of the safety first enthusiast who determined never to enter the water until he had learned to swim, of the horse owner, training his nag to live without eating, who was successful in reducing the feet to a straw a day, and was about to cut this off when the animal spoiled the test by dying a timely, of the fellow who posed before a looking glass with his eyes closed, to learn how he looked when asleep, of the inquisitive person who held a crow captive in order to test for himself whether it would live two centuries, of the man who demanded to know from an acquaintance met in the street whether it was he or his twin brother, who had just been buried, another Greek jest that has enjoyed a vogue throughout the world at large, and will doubtless survive even prohibition, was the utterance of Diogenes, when he was asked as to what sort of wine he preferred, his reply was, that of other people, again, we may find numerous duplicates of contemporary stories of our own in the collection over which generations of Turks have laughed. The tales of Nazirin, in reference to these, it may be noted that Turkish wit and humor are usually distinguished by a moralizing quality. When a man came to Nazirin for the loan of a rope, the request was refused with the excuse that Nazir's only piece had been used to tie up flour, but it is impossible to tie up flour with a rope, was the protest. Nazirin answered, I can tie up anything with a rope when I do not wish to lend it, when another would have borrowed his ass. Nazir replied that he had already loaned the animal. Thereupon, the honest creature brayed from the stable. But the ass is there, the visitor cried indignantly. I hear it. Nazirin retorted indignantly, What? Would you take the word of an ass instead of mine? In considering the racial characteristics of humor, we should pay tribute to the Spanish in the person of Cervantes. For Don Quixote is a mine of drollery. But the bulk of the humor among all the Latin races is of a sort that our more prudish standards cannot approve. On the other hand, German humor often displays a characteristic spirit of investigation. Thus, the little boy watching the pupils of a girl's school promenading two by two, graded according to age, with the youngest first and the oldest last, inquired of his mother, Mama, why is it that the girl's legs grow shorter as they grow older? In the way of wit, an excellent illustration is afforded by Heine who on receiving a book from its author wrote in acknowledgement of the gift, I shall lose no time in reading it. The French are admirable in both wit and humor, and the humor is usually kindly, though the shafts of wit are often barbed. I remember a humorous picture of a big man shaking a huge trombone in the face of a tiny canary in its cage, while he roars in anger, that's it, just as I was about, with the velvety tones of my instrument, to imitate the twittering of little birds in the forest. You have to interrupt with your infernal din. The caustic quality of French wit is illustrated plenteously by Voltaire. There is food for meditation in his utterance. Nothing is so disagreeable as to be obscurely hanged. He it was, too, who sneered at England for having sixty religions and only one gravy. To an adversary in argument who quoted the minor prophet Habakkuk, he retorted contemptuously, A person with a name like that is capable of saying anything but French wit is by no means always of the cutting sort. Its more amiable aspect is shown by the declaration of Brillat Severin to the effect that a dinner without cheese is like a beautiful woman with only one eye. Often the wit is nearly the measure of absurdity, as when a courtier in speaking of a fat friend said, 
I found him sitting all around the table by himself, and there is a ridiculous story of the impecunious and notorious Marquis de Faviers who visited a Parisian named Barnard, and announced himself as follows, Monsieur, I am about to astonish you greatly, I am the Marquis de Faviers, I do not know you, but I come to you to borrow five hundred louis, Barnard answered with equal explicitness, Monsieur, I am going to astonish you much more, I know you, and I am going to lend them to you, the amiable malice, to use a paradoxical phrase, which is often characteristic of French tales, is capitally displayed in the following, the wife of a villager in Poitou became ill, and presently fell into a trance, which deceived even the physician, so that she was pronounced dead, and duly prepared for burial, following the local usage, the body was wrapped in a sheet, to be borne to the burial place on the shoulders of four men chosen from the neighborhood, the procession followed a narrow path leading across the fields to the cemetery, at a turning, a thorn tree stood so close that one of the thorns tore through the sheet and lacerated the woman's flesh, the blood flowed from the wound, and she suddenly aroused to consciousness, fourteen years elapsed before the good wife actually came to her deathbed, on this occasion, the ceremonial was repeated, and now, as the bearers of the body approached the turn of the path, the husband called to them, look out for the thorn tree, Friends, the written humor of the Dutch does not usually make a very strong appeal to us. They are inclined to be ponderous even in their play, and lack in great measure the sarcasm and satire and the lighter subtlety in fun-making. History records a controversy between Holland and Zealand, which was argued pro and con during a period of years with great earnestness. The subject for debate that so fascinated the Dutchmen was, does the cob take the hook, or does the hook take the cob? because British wit and humor often present themselves under aspects somewhat different from those preferred by us. We belittle their efforts unjustly. As a matter of fact, the British attainments in this direction are the best in the world, next to our own. Moreover, in the British colonies is to be found a spirit of humor that exactly parallels our own in many distinctive features. Thus, there is a Canadian story that might just as well have originated below the line, of an Irish girl, recently imported who visited her clergyman and inquired his fee for marrying. He informed her that his charge was two dollars. A month later, the girl visited the clergyman for the second time, and at once handed him two dollars, with the crisp direction, Go ahead and marry me. Where is the bridegroom? The clergyman asked. What? exclaimed the girl, dismayed. Don't you furnish him for the two dollars? It would seem that humor is rather more enjoyable to the British taste than wit, though their island indeed no lack of the latter, but the people delight most in absurd situations that appeal to the risibilities without any injury to the feelings of others. For example, Dickens relates an anecdote concerning two men, who were about to be hanged at a public execution, when they were already on the scaffold in preparation for the supreme moment. A bull being led to market broke loose and ran amok through the great crowd assembled to witness the hanging. One of the condemned men on the scaffold turned to his fellow, and remarked, I say, mate, it's a good thing we're not in that crowd, in spite of the gruesome setting and the gory annex of the bowl. The story is amusing in a way quite harmless. Similarly, too, there is only wholesome amusement in the woman's response to a vegetarian, who made her a proposal of marriage. She did not mince her words, go along with you. What? Be flesh of your flesh. And you living on cabbage? Go marry a grass widow. The kindly spirit of British humor is revealed even in sarcastic jesting on the domestic relation, which, on the contrary, provokes the bitterest jibes of the lands, the shortest of jokes, 
and perhaps the most famous, was in the single word of Punch's advice to those about to get married, don't. The like good nature is in the words of a woman who was taken to a hospital in the east end of London. She had been shockingly beaten, and the attending surgeon was moved to pity for her and indignation against her assailant. Who did this? He demanded. Was it your husband? Lord bless your. No, she declared helpfully. W.E. My husband is more like a friend nor a husband. Likewise, of the two men who had drunk not wisely but too well with the result that in the small hours they retired to a rest in the gutter. Presently, one of the pair lifted his voice in protest, I say, I'll go to Noiser Hotel this leak, or the incident of the tramp, who at the back door solicited alms of a suspicious housewife. His nose was large and of a purple hue. The woman stared at it with an accusing eye, and questioned bluntly, What makes your nose so red? The tramp answered with heavy sarcasm, That air nose all mine. Mum, is a blushing with pride. Cause it ain't stuck into other folks's business, but British wit, while often amiable enough, may on occasion be as trenchant as any French sully. For example, we have the definition of gratitude as given by Sir Robert Walpole, a lively sense of future favors. The Marquis of Salisbury once scored a clumsy partner at whist by his answer to someone who asked how the game progressed, I'm doing as well as could be expected, considering that I have three adversaries. So the retort of Lamb. When Coleridge said to him, Charles, did you ever hear me lecture? I never heard you do anything else. And again, Lamb mentioned in a letter how Wordsworth had said that he did not see much difficulty in writing like Shakespeare, if he had a mind to try it. Clearly, Lamb continued, nothing is wanted but the mind. Then there is the famous quip that runs back to Tudor times, although it has been attributed to various later celebrities, including Dr. Johnson. A concert singer was executing a number lurid with vocal pyrotechnics. An admirer remarked that the piece was tremendously difficult. This drew the retort from another auditor, difficult. I wish to heaven it were impossible. Americans are famous, and sometimes infamous, for their devotion to the grotesque in humor. Yet, a conspicuous example of such amusing absurdity was given by Thackeray, who made reference to an oyster so large that it took two men to swallow it whole. It is undeniable that the British are fond of puns. It is usual to sneer at the pun as the lowest form of wit. Such, alas, it too often island and frequently, as well, it is a form of no wit at all. But the pun may contain a very high form of wit, and may please either for its cleverness, or for its amusing quality, or for the combination of the two. Naturally, the really excellent pun has always been in favor with the wits of all countries. Johnson's saying, that a man who would make a pun would pick a pocket, is not to be taken too seriously. It is not recorded that Napier ever pinched a leather, but he captured sin, and in notifying the government at home of this victory he sent a dispatch of one word, Kekali, I have sinned. The pun is of the sort that may be appreciated intellectually for its cleverness, while not calculated to cause laughter. Of the really amusing kind are the innumerable puns of Hid. He professed himself a man of many sorrows who had to be a livelihood for a livelihood. His work abounds in an ingenious and admirable mingling of wit and humor. For example, Ben Battle was a soldier bold, and used to war his alarms, but the cannonball took off his legs, so he laid down his arms, and as they took him off the field, cried he, let others shoot, for here I leave my second leg, and the forty-second foot. It is doubtless true that it would require a surgical operation to get a joke into some particular Scotchman's head. But we have some persons of the sort even in our own country. 
Many of the British humorists have been either Scotch or Irish, and it is rather profitless to attempt distinctions as to the humorous sense of these as contrasted with the English. Usually, stories of thrift and penuriousness are told of the Scotch without doing them much injustice, while bulls are designated Irish with sufficient reasonableness. In illustration of the Scotch character, we may cite the story of the visitor to Aberdeen, who was attacked by three footpads. He fought them desperately, and inflicted severe injuries. When at last he had been subdued and searched the only money found on him was a crooked sixpence. One of the thieves remarked glumly, if he'd had a good shilling, he'd have killed the three of us. And there is the classic from Punch of the Scotchman, who, on his return home from a visit to London, in describing his experiences, declared, I had not been there an hour when bang, went sixpence, and at the Irish Bowl, we may quote an Irishman's answer when asked to define a bowl. He said, if you see 14 cows lying down in a field, and one of them is standing up, that's a bull. A celebrity to whom many Irish bulls have been accredited was Sir Boyle Rachi. He wrote in a letter, at this very moment, My dear, I am writing this with a sword in one hand and a pistol in the other. He it was who in addressing the Irish House of Commons asserted stoutly, single misfortunes never come alone, and the greatest of all possible misfortune is usually followed by a greater and there is the hospitable invitation of the Irishman, Sir, if you ever come within a mile of my house, I hope you will stop there, and it was an Irishman who remarked to another concerning a third, you are thin, and I am thin, but he says thin as the two of us put together, also, it was an Irishman who, on being overtaken by a storm, remarked to his friend, sure, we'll get under a tree, and when it's wet through, faith, we'll get under another, naturally, we Americans had our own bulls aplenty, and they are by no means all derived from our Irish stock. Yet, that same Irish stock contributes largely and very snappily to our fund of humor. For the matter of that, the composite character of our population multiplies the varying phases of our fun. We draw for laughter on all the almost countless racial elements that form our citizenry, and the whole content of our wit and humor is made vital by the spirit of youth. The newness of our land and nation gives zest to the pursuit of mirth. We ape the old, but fashion its semblance to suit our livelier fancy. We moralize in our jesting like the Turk, but are likely to veil the maxim under the motley of a Yiddish dialect. Our humor may be as meditative as the German at its best, but with a grotesque flavoring all our own. Thus, the widow, in plaintive reminiscence concerning the dear departed, said musingly, if John hadn't blowed into the muzzle of his gun. I guess he they got plenty of squirtles. It was such a good day for them. And in the moralizing vein, this, the little girl had been very naughty. She was bidden by her mother to make an addition to the accustomed bedtime prayer a request that God would make her a better girl. So, the dear child prayed, and, oh God, please make Nellie a good little girl. And then, with pious resignation, she added, nevertheless, oh God, thy will, not mine, be done, at times. We are as cynical as the French, so of the husband, who confessed that at first after his marriage he doted on his bride to such an extent that he wanted to eat her later, he was sorry that he hadn't, our sophistication is such that this sort of thing amuses us, and, it is produced only too abundantly, luckily, in contrast to it, we had no lack of that harmless jesting which is more typically English, for example, the kindly old lady in the elevator questioned the attendant brightly, don't you get awful tired, Sonny? Yes, Mom. The boy in uniform admitted, what makes you so tired, Sonny? Is it the going up? Mumber Mom. 
Is it the going down? Munger mom. Then what is it makes you so tired? Sonny. It's the questions. Mom. And this of the little boy. Who was asked by his mother as to what he would like to give his cousin for a birthday present. I know. Was the reply. But I ain't big enough. Many of our humorists have maintained a constant geniality in their humor. Even in the treatment of distressing themes. For example. Josh Billings made the announcement that one hornet. If it was feeling well. Could break up a whole camp meeting. Bill Nye. Artemis Ward and many another American writer have given in profusion of amiable sillinesses to make the nation laugh. It was one of these that told how a drafted man sought exemption because he was a Negro, a minister, overage, a British subject, and an habitual drunkard. The most distinctive flavor in American humor is that of the grotesque. It is characteristic in Mark Twain's best work, and it is characteristic of most of those others who have won fame as purveyors of laughter. The American tourist brags of his own, talk of the Sufjot, Niagara put her out in three minutes. That polished writer, Irving, did not hesitate to declare that Uncle Sam believed the earth tipped when he went west. In the archives of our government is a state paper wherein President Lincoln referred to Mississippi gunboats with draught so light that they would float wherever the ground was a little damp. Typically American in its grotesquerie was the assertion of a rural humorist who asserted that the hogs thereabout were so thin they had to have a knot tied in their tails to prevent them from crawling through the chinks in the fence. Ward displayed the like quality amusingly in his remark to the conductor of a tediously slow-moving accommodation train in the south. From his seat in the solitary passenger coach behind the long line of freight cars, he addressed the official with great seriousness, I ask you, conductor. Why don't you take the cow catcher off the engine and put it behind the car here, as it is now? There ain't a thing to hinder a cow from strolling into a car and biting a passenger. Similar extravagance appears in another story of a crawling train. The conductor demanded a ticket from a bald-headed old man whose face was mostly hidden in a great mass of white whiskers. I give it to ye, declared the ancient. I don't reckon so. The conductor answered, Where did you get on? That Parkins crossing. He of the hoary beard replied. The conductor shook his head emphatically. Wasn't anybody got aboard at Parkins Cross except one little boy? I wheezed the aged man. Was that little boy? In like fashion, we tell of a man so tall that he had to go up on a ladder to shave himself and down cellar to put his boots on. We Americans are good-natured, as is necessary for humor, and we have brains, as is necessary for wit, and we have the vitality that makes creation easy, even inevitable. So there is never any dearth among us of the spirit of laughter, of its multiform products that by their power to amuse make life vastly more agreeable. Every newspaper, and most magazines carry their quota of jests. Never, anywhere, was the good story so universally popular as in America today. It is received with gusto in the councils of government, in church, in club, in crossroads store. The teller of good stories is esteemed by all, a blessing and disguised. The collection that follows in this volume island it is believed, of a sort that will help mightily to build an honorable fame for the narrator. For greater convenience in references to the volume, the various stories and anecdotes are placed under headings arranged in alphabetical order. The heading in every case indicates the subject to which the narration may be directly applied. This will be found most full in selecting illustrations for addresses of any sort, or for use in arguments. History tells us how Lincoln repeatedly carried conviction by expressing his ideas through the medium of a story. His method is rendered available for anyone by this book. Stories. 
jokes for all occasions absent-mindedness the man of the house finally took all the disabled umbrellas to the repairers, next morning on his way to his office, when he got up to leave the street car, he absent-mindedly laid hold of the umbrella belonging to a woman beside him, for he was in the habit of carrying one, the woman cried, stop thief, rescued her umbrella and covered the man with shame and confusion, that same day, he stopped at the repairers, and received all eight of his umbrellas duly restored, as he entered a street car, with the unwrapped umbrellas tucked under his arm, he was horrified to behold glaring at him the lady of his morning adventure, her voice came to him charged with a withering scorn, oh, had a good day, didn't you, the absent-minded inventor perfected a parachute device, he was taken up in a balloon to make a test of the apparatus, arrived at a height of a thousand feet, he climbed over the edge of the basket, and dropped out, he had fallen two hundred yards when he remarked to himself, in a tone of deep regret, dear me, I've gone and forgotten my umbrella, the professor, who was famous for the wool gathering of his wits, returned home, and had his ring at the door answered by a new maid, the girl looked at him inquiringly, Emma's Professor Johnson at home, he asked, naming himself, Mumbersur, the maid replied, but he is expected any moment now, the professor turned away, the girl closed the door, then the poor man sat down on the steps to await for himself, the clergyman, absorbed in thinking out a sermon, rounded a turn in the path and bumped into a cow, he swept off his hat with a flourish, exclaiming, I beg your pardon, madam, then he observed his error, and was greatly chagrined, soon, however, again engaged with thoughts of the sermon, he collided with a lady at another bend of the path, get out of the way, you brute, he said, the most absent-minded of clergymen was a Methodist minister who served several churches each Sunday, riding from one to another on horseback. One Sunday morning he went to the stable while still meditating on his sermon and attempted to saddle the horse. After a long period of toil, he aroused to the fact that he,